welcome. My name is Russ Conser. I'm president of the Grassfed Exchange. Um, this is our normal series of what we call hallway conversations. Uh, during the Zoom-aided uh, pandemic phase, we uh, really uh, decided that uh, although we weren't able to get together for the past two years with our big major conference, um, we uh, what we honestly missed the most was the opportunity to network and chat about topics that were relevant to us in the hallways um, at those conferences. And so we started these hallway conversations as the Grassfed Exchange um, uh, last year, late last year, um, and uh, really try to pick up a topic and then just have a chat about it, not make a big to do about it. Um, Grassfed Exchange uh, is an educational nonprofit, so having a conversation that can be educational is certainly um, in, important to us. Uh, I should probably note, and I'll note again at the end, that uh, as of now, at least anyway, Grassfed Exchange will be back on next May 18th through the 20th in Fort Worth. We'll be at the Will Rogers Memorial Center. Any of you who've been to the Fort Worth Livestock Show and Rodeo before, which is one of the big ones, um, uh, will be in that venue. And it's going to be uh, really exciting. I Fingers crossed that you know, all, all the stars align and, and we can pull those uh, that event off safely. Again, it, it just to me, it feels like it'll be a big family reunion uh, again after years of living and looking at each other through Zoom windows. So, um, yeah, let's um, uh, give, give a little further context here, let people get to know uh, you, Melinda and Leslie, uh, a little bit about your background uh, and uh, just so we can have a basis for the conversation and we'll jump in. So Melinda, why don't you go first? Tell us who you are, where you come from and what you do now. Yeah, sure thing. So my name is Melinda Sepp. I lead the Working Lands and Natural Solutions work for the National Audubon Society. I joined Audubon earlier this year and am, fun fact, a veterinarian by training. Did not learn a lot about some of the birds that I work on now. Learned a little bit more about the food animal side of things, but um, I'm really happy to be working at Audubon and in the conservation community from this, from this spot. Um, before working at Audubon, I've worked on the Hill and at the Department of Agriculture and a few other places uh, and look forward to the discussion tonight. Cool. And you have some background when you're in ag in policy related stuff too. Is that fair? Yes, sir. Yep. <laughs> it's quite a, um, you know, God bless people like you. Uh, policymakers and accountants are people that I don't, I don't want to do that. So I'm glad other people are good at that. <laughs> uh, I, I've, I've often engaged with policy folks, but it's never in my DNA to to. To, I've never had an ambition to do that myself. All right, Leslie, tell us about yourself. Sure. So I'm Leslie Allison. I'm the executive director of the Western Landowners Alliance. I'm based in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, we work westwide. Um, we work. Uh, it's a it's a westwide network of landowners and land managers, land stewards, if you will, who are dedicated to keeping working lands whole and healthy uh, for both people and wildlife. Um, and uh, we we represent. Uh, a lot of public land ranchers, uh, as well as uh, folks that have conservation ranches, timber properties, you know, it's really a, a diversity of land-based interests, uh, guest ranches and so forth. Um, but a, a, probably a majority of our landowner members are uh, involved with working uh, with public lands ranching uh, and livestock operations. Um, and uh, my background is I grew up in New Mexico and then I ended up managing a ranch in Southern Colorado for about 16 years, a very diversified ranch. We ran all kinds of operations, livestock, hay, hunting, forestry, stream restoration, you name it, a real, a real blended ranch, which is you know, increasingly typical in a lot of the Intermountain West. Um, so that's my background. And then I've been in this position since about 2014 as the executive director. And we have staff in a number of different states uh, right now, Colorado, New Mexico, Wyoming, Montana, California, I think. Awesome. Great. I was a little nervous for a minute there. It looked like Facebook wasn't working back there, but I think it is. So if, if uh, somebody's um, checking that, if something doesn't work on Facebook, then uh, it knows me, ping me or something, but it looks like it's all working now. All right. So the topic tonight is 30 by 30, and we can probably go in this through a whole bunch of doors. I'm actually gonna start with the assumption that we're in a community of people that already appreciate how conservation and working land can coexist and work together. Um, but um, so, so maybe we'll come back to that, but maybe I can just tee it up with a question since both of you, I think have been involved in some way, if not 
directly from a distance um, in, in the 30 by 30 thing is how it's known in the ranching community anyway. What is this initiative? How did it come about and what's it trying to do? Um, maybe Leslie, I, I know you've been engaged in this so far. We start with you and, and uh, see if you can help ground us here. Sure. Well, we got involved with this when we learned that the Biden administration, uh, they were still in the transition phase. Um, it intended to, to put this out as an executive order. Um, that's when we really started to get involved and engaged. Um, and we were concerned that whatever might come out could, could adversely affect working lands. And so we got involved to try to help ensure that whatever did happen was supportive of working lands and the kinds of conservation that, you know, we um, help promote and support on working lands and uh, rural communities. Um, and so, so we've been engaged really from the very earliest phases in conversation just prior to the executive order coming out and then, and then throughout this past year. And we've actually been pretty pleased at the responsiveness of the administration. We, you know, the first thing we said was, you can't do something like this top down from Washington. It's likely to have some kind of terrible impact uh, out there. It needs to be informed, supported by, supportive of the working lands community. Working lands are central to anything that you're trying to accomplish. And so you really need to get that input from the working lands community. Um, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute because I think there's some questions about um, what this thing is, and, uh, and it, it's related to, to this idea that they need to be not prescribing that, but actually listening to us. So I'll go, I'll go back to that in, in just a minute. But you know, I think it, what's important to understand is why people are concerned about this. And if you look at what some of the science has been saying over the last number of decades, you know, the, the, the ecosystems across the planet are, are dependent on things like the rainforest in the Amazon or the boreal forest. They're, they're often described as the lungs of the planet, right? The grassland ecosystems are important all over the world for all kinds of values, conservation values, human values, um, and these systems are disappearing. And, and you see it really a lot in the West right now with a lot of the COVID migrations that are happening. We're seeing agricultural lands selling at a crazy rate and breaking up into subdivisions and there's a cascade of effects that go with that. And so the, the real thinking behind this is how much land do we collectively wanna to try to hold on to in some kind of natural condition that it can support you know, agricultural needs, it can support um, conservation values, biodiversity. You know, do we wanna live in a world that's say less than 30%, 20%, 10%, of open lands, you know, what happens when it comes to the point where we're all strip malls and concrete? Is there a point at which we might want to, you know, hold on to some of this? So I think the intent behind it is good. It's it's an international movement, um, you know, brought in the United States by groups working here. Um, so I think the, the intent is good. The how is, of course, what's really important in all this. And our goal has been to try to figure out, you know, where's the common ground? Um, between agriculture and conservation, uh, what can we get behind? How can this benefit, um, like I said, the working lands uh, that we're concerned about? Um, so I, I guess I'll pause there and, and turn it over to you, Melinda. Melinda, have you been involved in 30 by 30 much yet? And uh, what, what's your take on the intent, what it is, and what it's trying to accomplish? Yeah, I guess I'd actually kind of want to pick up a thread that I think Leslie had kind of gotten us to, and then I just want to lift back up, which is, um, I think there's this really timely opportunity to continue with purpose, I think, right? Like a purposeful collaborative discussion about what this should look like here, right? And, and also kind of acknowledge, and I think it's in, um, in some of the materials around the initiative already, kind of lift up and underscore locally led conservation, locally implemented, and, and then also to acknowledge working lands. And I hate to, I'm not gonna get on the soapbox because I think we're all probably of a similar frame here, but I just wanna acknowledge, you know, there's this, this perception sometimes that working lands look a certain way. And I think we need, it does all of us kind of um, a service to, to acknowledge that, you know, you can, stand and look out across the like vast open grasslands and just still acknowledge that they are working 
-hmm. and they are actively working and providing significant benefits and co-benefits, right? Directly in that community, downstream drinking water, biodiversity, habitat, like there's this very long list and, and that working lands are an important part of the discussion and that that stretches across different different ecosystems and different habits, right, from, for me, different ecosystems and different habitats, um, and frankly, also different communities, right? Like we live and work in these places. Right. And I, I would just jump in with that and say that one of the things that we've really tried to emphasize um, with the administration, I think that, again, that is being received well, is that there's already a lot of really great things happening. These working lands are providing all of those values that you're talking about. So the question um, is really about how do we support what's already working? And, and that's really where the, the thrust of our involvement has been. You know, I, I think that we take issue with the idea that, you know, it's not working until you, you know, carve it out into permanent legal protection and take people off of it. And I would say it's, it's the reverse. You know, that's, that's when you start to, you know, have things start to not work as well. So, so we're trying to, you know, help support what's actually working and, and center it on the people who are making it work, really. So you've been doing some educating, I assume, Leslie, with stakeholders in Washington around the country on this kind of stuff, or some of them kind of starting to grasp these concepts of working yes. with providing these services? Yeah, you know, I think the thing that I like about the whole thing, I mean, love it or hate it, what it's done is it's prompted this incredibly important national conversation about this issue. And it has mm -hmm. thrown sort of the role and contributions of working lands into the spotlight. And so we have this America the Beautiful report that explicitly recognizes, respects, calls for the inclusiveness of working lands and the people who steward working lands. Um, and that I think is an incredibly important addition to the conversation about what is conservation. And I see it as a real opportunity for us to begin to shape the next era of conservation in a more productive path so that it's not, you know, um, a fight between, you know, agriculture and, and the environment that that is a false dichotomy. I think most of us who, you know, manage working lands understand, especially grazing lands, that these things can and really should go together very compatibly and, and do in, in most cases and that that needs to be recognized and supported. Um, and how can we have a conservation movement nationally and abroad that, um, that, that, that recognizes that, that is actually informed, inspired, led by the people on the land instead of something that's imposed top down that seeks to remove people from the land. So we think it, it offers a real turning point. And, but that, to get that turning point in place is gonna take leadership from the working lands community. If, if we sit back and we throw rocks at it and we walk away from it and we let other people decide, then it's probably not gonna be um, what we want. It's probably gonna be what we fear. Linda, any thoughts? No, I just, I mean, I feel like this, there's a lot of head nodding kind of as all of us are speaking because so much of this is really coming back to like, there's this very timely opportunity both to lift up and lead um, and, and kind of to come back to something that Leslie already said, um, to also lift up and, and acknowledge what's working and, and kind of right within, the, within that conversation to acknowledge that maybe we tried some things that didn't work, but here are some other things that work. And, and part of what I think was really great to see in the um, report that you mentioned, Leslie, is also just like a very clear emphasis on flexibility and local, like what works mm -hmm. in one place may not work in another place, but also there's this community of learning and community of practice and just in acknowledging and affirming that. Mm -hmm. So where are we at in this process now? Um, you said there was an executive order. What was in the executive order? Um, and, um, you know, I, at least my impression here is I went back and reread the America, the beautiful report this afternoon, which indeed it feels um, uh, quite, quite good, but you know, what, what's next? Where does this lead to either in policy or other actions um, that, that are associated with this? Or I assume I, we're, we're just midstream in something right now. Is that fair? And if so, where? Yeah, and so I think there's a, there's a, real, there's a couple of challenges I think that everyone's facing right now. So they, they had this executive order that said, you know, we wanna conserve, you know, these lands. We wanna be inclusive of, of, of 
landowners and farmers, ranchers, fishermen, you know, all the people on the land. Um, and we want to, we want an inclusive process to figure out how we're going to do this. And then gave themselves, I think it was 90 days uh, to come out with a report um, about this. And that was the America, the beautiful report, which came out in the spring. Um, and the America, the beautiful report spells out a number of principles um, uh, that, of what they're trying to accomplish. And I think if, if you take the time to actually read the report, read the principles, there's a lot to like in there. Um, really, no matter sort of where you're coming from, if you actually read it, take it seriously, I, th I think there's a lot to like. But what, what we asked specifically was don't tell us how this is going to happen. Because what we hear from landowners and from ranchers and farmers everywhere is we don't want Washington bureaucrats telling us how to manage land and what to do and how to do it from, you know, that top down federal management has, you know, been problematic in many cases. So let's have a conservation movement that is led by people on the land and create a process for us where we really inform you what we need for this to work. We've got good stuff working. We're going to come and tell you what's needed to keep it working, support it. They have honored that. And as a result, they have not put out prescriptions. They haven't said, this is what this is going to look like. They are waiting for that input from the working lands community. But the criticism they've received is, hey, you haven't told us what you're going to do. So therefore, you must be not being transparent um, about this. And we're suspicious because, we, so it's kind of like they're waiting for us, we're waiting for them. So we're in this kind of stalemate process this year, trying to figure out how do we have this national conversation? You know, how do we talk to each other across all these different stakeholder groups on very complex issues? It's really tough to get your arms around. And who are the leaders that are going to come forward and help have this conversation and collect that input. And, you know, they've got constraints that they have to operate on under as federal officials. You know, there's, there's uh, different constraints as to how these things can be constructed. So they have parameters. But those of us on the outside have a lot of opportunity to actually organize conversations. And that's one thing our organization is doing a lot of is we're organizing conversations of working land thought leaders and landowners and everybody else, diverse stakeholders, um, to try to provide that input into, into the administration in, in some kind of constructive way. That's where we are. The other thing I think the administration has struggled with is, you know, they came into, you know, largely empty offices. You know, frankly, they're, they're, they're understaffed. They've put a lot on themselves. There's a lot of expectations and, you know, they, they just can't do it all overnight. And so I think the process has dragged on longer than than people are comfortable with and in that vacuum where they didn't put you know clear you know prescriptions out and there didn't seem to be a lot going on a lot of suspicion mm. developed um and so you have on the one side you know a lot of resistance just building in sort of anticipation of what's going to happen without any real information to operate on and on the other side you have people who have their own ideas of what this should look like, including a lot of groups that would like to see this be strictly about wilderness designations. Um, and, and they're trying to fill this vacuum. And so right now there is a vacuum. Folks are starting to fill it. The administration is now starting to work, move forward. And the first step they're really working on, as I understand it, is this uh, atlas of conservation. So. Mm what they're asking this question of, you know, what land is already conserved, what land, you know, is, is already playing the, a, a role. And there's a lot of discussion about what should count when we try to put together an atlas. And there are groups that would say only land that's permanently legally protected should count. And there are groups like ours that say, no, you would be overlooking the most important lands and the most important stewardship out there if you were to do that. And so it's, you know, so this debate is on the table right now. What should count? What does conservation mean? What should count and who gets to decide? And then how do we support it? That's, that's the question right now. So I think we're going to look into this next year. They'll be developing the Atlas. The NRCS is working with the U.S. Geological Service to um, try to develop the, you know, 
the way that that atlas takes shape and, and what goes into it. And then lots of groups are holding different input sessions and trying to provide um, some guidance uh, in that process. So I think that's mostly where we are. And then in the meantime, I think you see the administration trying to put a lot of funding behind things like infrastructure, restoration, um, things like that, that can also support those goals, particularly the biodiversity and, and, and climate goals that they've laid out. Because those already fall inside other programs. Correct. Melinda, you've been on the policy writing side before. Does this look really foreign to you or so familiar? Like, um, I actually was going to say it's coming back to a couple of things. Um, remarkably, there's this like kind of, you know, familiar conversation, but part of what is so exciting about this opportunity in this time, right, is there are some really strong signals in the first report around voluntary and working lands. Um, and and I, I think there was also, I think that first report kind of acknowledged and, and went back to some of the other pieces from the EO around kind of this like annual public report as this continues to be implemented. So there's an expectation that there will be one like late this calendar year, early next calendar year, kind of the next report. Um, and, and that that is an opportunity for folks to see kind of across government, right? Because there were multiple departments involved in this. And I think, you know, Sometimes we're all like most familiar maybe with USDA and RCS, or if, if you're grazing on public lands, you've got public land management agencies that you're also familiar with. Um, but it kind of is the opportunity to stitch all of that together. And, and part of what I, I think is this like really great signal that Leslie's been um, talking about earlier is that kind of these principles around the early, like this early, progress and early action items and kind of early concepts is that one that's lifted up very clearly in that first report is incentivizing and rewarding voluntary private land conservation. Um, and there's, you know, a paragraph in there about, I think maybe not a full paragraph, I'm trying to remember now, but like there's a paragraph in there on USDA that speaks about the Farm Bill conservation programs, I think mentioned Working Lands, uh, working lands for Wildlife Initiative. And and the signal that sends right about all of those programs are voluntary private land programs that folks opt into. They recognize the private land stewardship of working lands. And, and to see that integrated into this kind of broad vision, I think for a lot of us, right, was a strong signal that that conversation is going to continue, but also that there was from this foundation report, there was recognition of the value of private working land conservation that would continue to be voluntary in nature. And Leslie is that, that's not, there's so much to try and capture and funnel down, but that one feels like worth lifting back up and just saying like, you know. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got it pulled up and I put it in the chat actually for folks, if you wanna actually look at it. But if you, if you look at principle number six in the report, it's honor private property rights and support the voluntary stewardship efforts of private landowners and fishers. Um, it talks about the contributions of America's fishers, farmers, ranchers, forest owners, and so forth. Um, and, you know, very, I think, tellingly, too, at the bottom of that principle, they have a statement that um, I think caught a lot of, 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 of people's attention um, that this, it says this, it says this commitment includes a clear recognition that maintaining ranching in the West on both public and private lands is essential to maintaining the health of wildlife prosperity of local economies and an important and proud way of life. And so, you know, if, if we are to take them at their word, that's pretty meaningful. That's um, encouraging. So to, to your point, um, the next question is how do we give them the guidance to support yeah. what we're doing? Yeah. I, I, even though it said it in here, it really wasn't um, sensitive to the importance of the period we're in now it's this listening period. It's like an open invitation act. I can totally get this kind of vacuum that creates suspicion uh, thing here. We're all uh, work that way. My eyes were drawn to uh, the section of the report um, where they said, well, here's some things we can start doing and recommendations for early focus. And there were six things laid out. And the uh, fifth one was indeed exactly what you said, Melinda, incentivize and reward voluntary conservation efforts. Um, I am intrigued that um, at least somebody's trying to break the stalemate by starting to do something. So NRCS and USGS starting to put together an atlas. Um, and I can totally see this 
uh, is, you know, what counts and who gets to decide what makes it into the atlas, right? I can totally see that that's got to have a lot of yeah. politics uh, on it here. What's, I'm going to break it into two pieces. What are the substantive things on kind of what counts that you, you guys are picking up in terms of the tensions in the debate? Because there are certainly some people are saying we should count this, we should not count that, right? So what are the substantive things? And then what are the kind of the perceptions maybe uh, of, of things that, um, you know, people think that, you know, this is going to happen, but that's not even on really in the discussion. So let's take the first part first. What, what's your sense so far on what are the substantive issues in terms that people are struggling with on what to count? I think you that tell? <laughs> maybe you can't tell you. Maybe it's really. No, no, I no, I uh, I I think that. See if I can say this in a simple way, but I think that the big debate really is comes down to some worldview differences um, about what conservation means. So for for some people, preservation is really the heart of conservation. So for some people, setting nature aside and protecting it from human impacts is really at the heart of conservation. And it has to be permanent legal protection for right. people to feel happy that, that that has been in fact conserved and that it's a worthwhile investment. So that's one set of people. Another worldview, which is I think more widely held in rural communities, often indigenous communities, um, and I think increasingly uh, in a broader community is that people have a central role to play on land. You know, we, for one thing, we're here, we derive our sustenance from land, um, but, but we've been stewards of the earth for a very long time in different ways, and we can enhance biodiversity. We are part of nature. If you take that perspective, your view of conservation changes quite a bit, um, and then you get into the you know, this, this conservation is kind of a wise use thing. We want to, you know, use the land, but we want to conserve our resources so they continue to be there for us. If we take care of the land, it will take care of us. Uh, and then there's this other sort of layer to that, which is, is stewardship, which is that we're actually, you know, ideally would have a reciprocal relationship with the land, that we're not just using the land, but that we're actually adding value to the land. So we're, we're regenerating it, we're, we're enhancing biodiversity, that um, you know, we play a meaningful role, that we take our responsibility seriously as members of the living community of the land. Um, and I, I think that if, if you look at an increasingly crowded planet, that's the only, in my view, the only path forward is for us to figure out, as Aldo Leopold said was the oldest task in human history is to learn to live on a piece of land without spoiling it. How do we live in a relationship with the land that continues to regenerate it and protect these resources and make them available for us in future generations, support the rest of the living community that shares the, the planet with us? You know, that is our task. And that's not something that you get by drawing lines on a map and right. keep people away from nature, right? Now, this comes down to how do we manage? How do we stay economically viable? How do we have relationships in a landscape that can help us navigate the many diverse values that we're trying to manage for. That is a much more complex, and frankly, in my opinion, mature view of what conservation should be and must be going forward into the future. So, you know, I see this uh, whole moment in time as, a, as an opportunity to really pay attention to that aspect of conservation. So I think the debate comes down to this, you know, is it just permanent legal protection that excludes people from the land or just lets people use the land recreationally, or is it something much more complex and holistic? Yeah, I mean, Melinda, I got my own thoughts, but I wanna give you an opportunity to get a word in here. Cause no. uh, I mean, I think this is the crux of it. I agree, it's broadly in society. It's not just a 30 by 30 program. This is a, a pivot point for civilization on planet earth, but go ahead, Melinda. No, I was just gonna say, I think um, I appreciate it. Leslie, it's, it's, there's these like, you know, these are, complicated nuanced conversations to have and like trying to even like succinctly capture it in a two minute like right. here's the question right like uh. <laughs> um it's just it's challenging and I think that's part of why coming back to the top of the call like that's part of why it's you know these types of conversations informally when we all would gather for other things were kind of what you you know you have a side conversation about or say like oh gosh let's just catch up and think through this and and I think coming back to you know 
a couple of, of points from, from earlier and just because they're so important to this particular discussion, like this part of the discussion is, you know, as folks are thinking about whether it's, you know, the first draft of the atlas or the other questions and, and I would say not even questions like the kind of themes and issues that are laid out in that um, first report. I think there's an acknowledgement that those are all like, those are, are, there's a long arc to those discussions, but we need to perhaps now's the time to, to really like build some momentum and energy and get some clarity around some consensus around this particular one. Um, and I think, you know, it comes back to something Leslie's already said, which is folks who opt to participate in the discussion that is happening too. Um, you know, I think I just, as mm -hmm. an example, right, for Audubon, we, we have a voluntary program that probably some of the folks joining us are familiar, are pretty familiar with, which is a conservation ranching program that certifies bird-friendly habitat on privately managed grazing lands um, in an ecosystem that is incredibly important for us, right? You know, grassland bird species are among the, the most imperiled group of birds in the U.S. and not, not necessarily to say that the others are doing just great, but that you know, kind of the total populations have declined over 50% since 1970 for, for a lot of those grassland species. Some species are, you know, like on the precipice. And, and for us, collaborating with land stewards and land managers who are actively living in the community, managing land day to day, and recognizing and lifting up the value of that work and that I, I think of it a lot of, around just kind of that land management ethics, right? Um, and acknowledging it and being comfortable as, as Audubon to say, we wanna put our, we are, we are gonna work on a seal and a logo that should go on the products from this certified habitat. Um, because we recognize the value in the marketplace of signaling that, that there should be this partnership because a living landscape is supporting biodiversity and all of these other co-benefits that, we, that we've talked about already earlier on this call tonight. Yeah, I know, I think this stuff's fund, fundamental. Um, it's, it's profoundly fundamental. It's more than ranchers and ag land, it's civilizational. I mean, I, you know, I came in as, as many people here know through a scientific door and it wasn't apparent to me until I started looking, but we've, been slowly degrading the planet for 10,000 years. Um, and, um, but, uh, you know, one of the things that brought me into this space and kept me here and made it my passion, right, is that I've been on so many regenerative farms across America now where uh, ranchers treating the land differently are not just like keeping it from running down the river, they're actually making it better, right? And I, I, I fundamentally think that we're at a point where as a civilization, we have to decide, are we going to I, I'm going to have to go back and watch the thing here uh, just to get your words again, lastly, you know, are, are, are we going to participate as a part of nature uh, in a planet that helps make nature better? Or are we going to keep doing what we've been doing for 10,000 years, which is slowly uh, make it worse pretty fast, actually in the last hundred years um, or, or, or so. So I, I think it's uh, pretty fundamental. So we're at that pivot point. It's not surprising to me that other people may not get it yet. When I think of, traditional understanding, certainly my own understanding of conservation before is what happens when you put up a gate, a sign, a fence, or even kind of symbolically, I always think of that scene in one of my favorite movies is Steven Spielberg's Amistad, right? And Anthony Hopkins' character is like paying attention to this little violet under a glass, right? You know, little African violet is so delicate, right? And I think that's kind of the traditional conservation view is you got to put it under a glass and you got to treat it with such delicate care. And what I see in the regenerative ranching community is people that just see it with wisdom, approach it with stewardship. And, um, you know, I guess my question to you is how do we make that visible to more people? Because once you see it, you can't unsee it. When you've stepped into a pasture and the birds fly and the bees and butterflies are here and they're not over there in the row crop field. How, how, I mean, um, are, are you doing tours or should we do tours? Um, how, how do we get how do we get people that are involved in this debate to see the magic that can happen when people do do it right? Yeah, 
That's it's a great. Is, is it a chart or a spreadsheet, or, or is it a visit to a farm, or what is it? It's 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 probably not sitting on Facebook and arguing at each other. Um, you know, you know what? Go ahead. No, I. So I was just gonna. You know, I think it's. There's a. I want to come back to that to the question rest, but I just want to. There's one really interesting point I've been thinking about a little bit more recently around. You know we're all on screens a lot more than we maybe were a few years ago. Yeah. And it's so interesting when you hear like those, like the, the um, meditation apps or the like soothing apps, it's right. The default is outdoor nature noises, mm. right? Yeah. The, the default Great is like point. quiet rainfall in the forest, grassland songbirds, right? Like it's so there's this, there's this innate, like folks are there and, and we, I just think about it around this real opportunity kind of to what we've been going around here around folks are there and, and you know, maybe it's not a tours, but it's even just acknowledging like, you know, there's all, this whole world of the research around the benefit of being outside. Like I just read an article the other day that was talking about the benefit of walking your dog compared to walking outside without your dog, like the health benefit of this. Um, oh, really? Difference. I, veterinarian interesting articles that come um but but just kind of acknowledging right and and maybe there's a the double edge to that is we live in a world where folks don't have to take a farm tour necessarily to see and hear mm. those things um though it's certainly i'm not i'm not presuming that that actually is the same as standing there in that space and also being in person with each other right like there is a difference to that but but there's also so much, so many other avenues to kind of lift those stories yeah. up and lift those examples up too. And I know before I came to Audubon, when I was in my last job, I was during the COVID era, we had transitioned to some folks who, you know, for six plus months had said, gosh, I'd love to have you come out to the farm. And at some point it was like, well, why don't we just do a FaceTime call and you can like video show me around at least, you know, I can't travel yet, but at least that way there's like a, we can we can talk about this in a virtual way that farms, different. virtual yeah. pasture walks. I don't, what do you, I, I don't know about you. I've got all kinds of faults and, and vices. One of them is a Kickstarter addict. I love supporting entrepreneurs with crazy ideas. And my favorite one right now um, that I've backed is a project called Terra. And it's really a bioacoustic thing, listening to wildlife outside. And, and it's a little iPhone app that you put up a little stereo speaker on a pod in your backyard and you can kind of listen to the birds and the water and whatever it filters out using AI, all the other industrial noise. And so you get the sounds of nature wow. in your home. And I'm like, dude, like that's fun in the backyard. But what I want is one on every ranch in America. And I want this, I kind of have this vision of, uh, I don't remember which of the Batman movies was with Morgan Freeman. He created this listening wall of like every cell phone device. And you could listen to New York city or Gotham, right. You know, and, yeah. and thinking like, what would it sound like to listen to America through the sounds of, a virtual digital thing. I don't, it, it is fun to think about um, how we might do that. I mean, what do you guys find actually works with people? And I'm going to pop over and get some questions here from the, to, mm -hmm. from, from the list, but like in your own experience, so the, the FaceTime walk in the, in the farm is a good one, Melinda. Are there other things that you guys have found are very effective in helping people see the wider opportunity and a different approach to conservation? Gosh, you know, I, yeah, I enjoyed that Facebook or the FaceTime tour, you know, it was that or, or nothing. And it's, you know, I think I had another one with folks who had like a new processing mill that they'd put in and, and they were describing it and it's, you know, some things are just, you have to see it. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm also pretty confident and like aware of there's this whole kind of realm of communications expertise that is not, you know, what I'm necessarily most skilled at, but I'm sure there are folks out there who are thinking creatively about that. Um, and I think, you know, just, I think that's why you see some folks thinking about social media presence, right. In a different way and in yeah. lifting up, you know, videos and photos of their own places and, and connecting that so that whether it's consumers or, or community members can kind of see, you know, back to this, like see where their food comes from yeah, and, and see how it's part of, you know, there is, there's a, a broader kind of ecosystem that it's a part of. Um, I, I had this just bizarre idea if we could do something with Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, this goofy 
surreal and frightening idea of a metaverse where everything is synthetic and fake, right? You know, the idea that anyone would want to live in such a thing is frightening. But if, if we could use that technology to get people out into um, pastures and farmlands and get them to see where the food came from, Melinda, that resonated with me. I'm not sure if anybody listening here um, is that kind of entrepreneur, um, but um, there, there you go. I, I hope somebody maybe picks it up. Leslie, did you want to add anything there? Otherwise, I'm going to jump over and, and uh, see if we can yeah. grab some questions from the chat. Yeah, I would say, you know, when we think about communications, we often think about sort of communicating to the general public. Um, but it's it's very difficult to do that today um, in any you know real way. There are mm. some channels to do that, but what what we do see is this you know gross misinformation that's out there and the politicization of everything that we're talking about today. Yeah, that I think is crippling our ability to communicate because people can't see past the misinformation that's being circulated on all sides, um, and they listen to you know those sort of sources that they you know are drawn to. And if the information coming out from those sources is not accurate, they have no way of really knowing, you know, what's real, what's not, what's greenwashing, what's not. And so one of the things that we're really working on hard is working with environmental groups to say, look, if you're serious about, you know, the environment, if you're serious about conservation, um, then you have to take a really hard look at where conservation really is happening um, and how we're going to, you know, and it really is happening on these places. These places are crucial to your goals. Yeah. But the rhetoric you're putting out is 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 killing us, right? It's, it's putting all kinds of downward pressure on these lands, and you're going to end up, you know, cutting your nose off just by your face, kind of thing. Like, so we're talking to the groups that have the bullhorns, right? The groups that are putting out the information, mm. and, and and what our hope is to do is to marginalize the groups that are putting out disinformation, misinformation, um, on on all sides and try to generate a big enough voice in the middle of practical, rational, thoughtful um, organizations, individuals, you know, I mean, real world stuff. Um, and really, you know, our idea is to sort of lift, kind of, Melinda, to your point, to lift that voice up, to lift up this groups like yours, um, who really are out on the ground working with ranchers and farmers, um, seeing the value of what of what's being provided there, and to work with ranchers and farmers similarly who see the value of conservation. I mean, anybody that's been on land long enough knows we've got to take care of the land if it's going to take care of us. And you know, but we're not always great at doing that. We have to be honest and say we've had a lot of failures out there as well as successes. I think when our different lobby groups, whether you're with the environmental community or the agricultural community, Get out there and use this sort of anti-statements. We're, we're anti-environment in some way. We're anti-endangered species act. This is coming from the agricultural community. If we're anti-conservation, that's not serving our ability to communicate with a public that cares very much about conservation, right? And when the environmental community comes out and says they're anti-ranching or anti-agriculture, well, that's not helping very much, um, particularly among people who you know, recognize that we have a need to eat. Um, so, so we need to get to that sort of what are we for together and really make that the loud voice, uh, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's no small task, right? Fighting misinformation. There's a lot of people in that business these days, but there's more people making money out of spreading misinformation. So it's, it's hard. Well, and I think just to, you know, come back to a really great point. It's also, you know, we don't have to have the whole answer there are these really great examples that we can start having some shared opportunities and just lifting up and saying, here are some examples. Like let's, that, that kind of initial framing doesn't rely on like, let's figure out all of the examples that we ever want to talk about as success mm. and, and models, right? It's, you know, okay, here's one. Great. Let's talk about that. So let's, let's dive into that a bit. Cause one of the questions here is can, um, can you tell us a little bit more about the uh, Atlas and who's involved and, and maybe even talk about, um, because that feels like a place where we can highlight examples, what you're just talking about, right? You know, we can show where things that are really good are happening. So um, Melinda, I mean, uh, Leslie, that sounds like it's a good place for you to start. So far, um, what kind of things or examples of things going in the Atlas and how, how's that work and who's involved and um, maybe what can people in this community do to to help with that? 
Yeah, so I think first off, a lot of the answers I don't know because um, I don't think anybody knows. I think the process is just really getting started right now. Okay. USGS is working with the NRCS as a starting point um, to try to figure this out. And there are conversations taking place, forums, listening sessions where people are starting to provide input into what that should look like. And I think that one of the, the questions is, you know, whether or not you want your land to be included in the atlas, it really has a lot to do with what you think that is going to come from that, right? So if being included means you think you're going to be subject to increased federal regulation, you may say, I don't want any part of that, right? right. Um, but if what you think it means is that you're going to get um, a lot of support, that there's going to be programs, uh, resources made more available to you, and you're going to have public recognition for once of what these lands are actually contributing to society, um, your consumers get to see that, then that may be something that you would say, well, I actually, I'd like to be included in the Atlas. And so, you know, what is, so what I'm seeing from the America the Beautiful report, the intent is that this is voluntary conservation efforts that would be supported by things like farm bill funding, um, you know, other types of federal or, or state funding uh, that would come in and support it. So um, if, if that's true, then, then I would think that uh, we'd want to be fairly expansive about what gets included in the Atlas so that we can recognize the great work that's happening on these working landscapes and that we can bring more support to that because the, the truth is, you know, family agriculture is struggling uh, and we're losing farms and ranches. I just saw a statistic, we've lost over 5 million acres of agricultural land in my home state, New Mexico, just in the last two decades. When we lose that land, that is the future of agriculture, among other things. It's the future of a lot of things when we lose that. So can the Atlas serve as a way to bring support uh, to these lands to keep them intact in ways that are positive for us and not ways that are looked at as, you know, a government land grab. Yeah, and it's hard, it's hard to know until things happen, right? Because, I mean, there's plenty of room to be suspicious of anything. Right. But certainly in terms of atlases, you know, I, I came into this through the science of uh, soil, carbon, climate change, learned biodiversity and the other many wonders of this stuff. But I certainly saw that the, what I think can be called an atlas of um, climate solutions that, uh, Paul Hawken and his team at Drawdown put together has actually been incredibly powerful, and because it's a it's a list of a whole bunch of different ways that that you know we can address the climate problem, and at least in principle, if we can develop an atlas of a whole bunch of different ways that we can conserve land, it creates an opportunity for everybody to see opportunity there um, that that could be really interesting. Now uh, you said it's early, so maybe it's just way too early, but I think in our community. I mean, it varies. NRCS, though, is a very frequent connection point to many people in our community. Is it, is it pretty much just in some inner circles in Washington now? Or if, if people have interest in this, is there an opportunity to talk to local NRCS staff and agents and find out more? Or is it just that they won't know anything at this point? Do you know? There's a public comment period coming out, uh, I think, right now, shortly. Um, so there will be some public comment periods that people can look to, um, somebody asked a question about, is there legislation? There was legislation that actually I think um, Secretary Holland introduced when she was still in Congress and others have, have gotten by. And so there's, there has been a, a, this 30 by 30 legislative thing, but I have not been tracking that. We've been only involved with the, the federal administration side. And right now I'm not aware of um, you know, any legislation other than conservation type funding and restoration funding, infrastructure funding that's coming out uh, around mm -hmm. that. Do you think it ends up back there before we're done, or is that just something that's too early to say? Do we end up with legislation, or is this just all done under policy and executive wing of government? I think it's too early to say. I think it's probably going to influence potentially farm bill um, policy in the next farm bill um, would would be one guess. Um, I, I, yeah, I think it's just a little bit early to say, and depends a lot on how people see this and whether there's support for it, um, whether we want to see investment into it, I think. Melinda, you've had your fingers in actually writing the Farm Bill in the past, if I understand right. So do you, is that a plausible place where some effective things this can connect into, or is, is that not a plausible path in the future for this? Gosh, I mean, I, I think we're just so early in the process now, right? Like, I think it's 
one, there's clearly recognition that those voluntary programs that are authorized by the Farm Bill are important. And you know, I think the more folks that agree that those programs are important and worth continuing and, and you know, further supporting is great. Um, but I think it's it's kind of too early to say exactly how it would feed in, how it would kind of feed into future legislation, because kind of to, to Leslie's point, I think I think the public comment period is still open. Um, and you know, hopefully all of those public comments are going to inform next steps as it relates to like, you know, fine-tuning what this the atlas looks like, the types of examples of successes and or case studies that folks want to lift up is like here here are some of the models um, and that theoretically all of those kind of decisions would inform future policy or legislative actions okay. under the umbrella of the initiative yeah. yeah this is the kind of thing that at least like i said myself i've been involved in <clears throat> um giving advice to government activities before, but never have been involved in policy formulation. So I have no sense how long it takes, how much slave, really hard work it goes into that stuff. So it sounds like that's a fairly long timeline yet for any material things. And there's a there's a regular schedule for farm bill. Um, isn't there, Melinda? Yeah, the, the current bill um, will be up for reauthorization in late 2023. Okay. Which sounds really far away, but, you know, actually is not that far away. Probably the things that are in there are already getting somewhat firm. Is that kind of how that works? Two years ahead of time? Oh, things I don't, I, I can't presume to know where folks are in a farm bill decision now, but, um, but I do think that, you know, just as we've all been talking through this evening, there are opportunities for folks to really like look at proposals, participate through the official public comment periods, and also Kind of coming back to something that that Leslie said really early on our um, on the on during the discussion tonight, to think about partnerships and collaborations to lift up and amplify messages and narratives and examples of what this what this looks like um, when it specifically around working lands and kind of voluntary conservation of working lands. Um, Where so is the, the good news that right is that like all of that work is what we can all be collaborating on and working together yeah. on. You know now and also in like during the may grass-fed exchange meeting even right yeah 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 no i think we're gonna make some room for this at the grass-fed exchange we we want to always be talking about the things that are important now and i have no doubt that come next may this this will still be hot if not hotter um what what, what exactly do people look for in terms of uh the public comment period i it, is there a particular report or paper or a website they should go look at? Do you guys know? Um, I mean, I'll, I'll say when the when the I think the, the coming comment period um, opens, we we will certainly be publicizing, and I imagine it'll be widely publicized. And I would hope that all the different organizations that have a stake in this would be disseminating that to their members. Uh, so there should be plenty of opportunities, I would think, for that public comment. And certainly, people are. Welcome to you know reach out, talk to me, and and we can make sure that you're on the list for when we send out notices that these things are coming up, or if there's forums or listening sessions that we're involved in or aware of, uh, happy to spread that information. I mean, our goal is to make sure that the voice of of landowners and producers, you know, gets heard in all of this. And what we want to know is what works. What what do people want? Well, like one of the things that that we hear all the time is that people would like to be recognized and to some degree compensated for the, the you know, ecological services that they're providing on well-managed ranches and farms. And we're already providing a ton of that value, but it's an uncompensated value. And that uncompensated value is driving up land costs. And it's in some ways is making it harder to do business. And can we get something that, that helps compensate and recognize that? Would that help family farms and ranches stay in business? Um, which then helps all the other things because of the co-benefits that that provides, right? But what, what do people want to see? Yeah, and even there, I can imagine it's really complicated. You said earlier that um, the pandemic has really created increased demand for uh, rural communities and homes, so it drives up land prices, which makes it harder for farmers. They're just trying to eco living off the land. Um, so there's these counter in, uh, counterintuitive and counterproductive implications of some of this stuff. Let's, let's get... Um, yeah, just a couple more over here. Um, biodiversity, 
Um, Linda, that's in your wheelhouse. Um, someone wants to know, does it include animal, mineral, vegetable? What's, how would you describe the scope of biodiversity that matters under the lens of 30 by 30? What are we trying to preserve here, conserve? Yeah, I, so again, and I think maybe coming back to a point that we made earlier, I, I can't answer on behalf of the administration and their initiative definitions, right? I, I, right. I, I'm not an employee of the administration working on this for them. So maybe what I think might be helpful is just, you know, like for me, when I think about how we work as it relates to biodiversity, right? And that's, if you think about an ecosystem or a specific place, right? It's the, the full breadth of life that is captured as you think about the, the picture you have of that ecosystem. So that includes, um, you know, soil health, soil microbes, all the way down, right? Stuff that we can't really see. That includes all of the vegetation you see, all of those plants. Um, that also includes all of the wildlife there, right? Um, and wildlife that might be migratory in nature and rely on that habitat seasonally. And that, that kind of concept around a habitat and an ecosystem that supports biodiversity implies, you know, not necessarily just like the abundance of one or two species that you're going and encountering, but an abundance of diversity and biodiversity in a landscape. And that's, I think for most of us, you know, when you think about as you manage, as we all are thinking about land management, like those are the types of pictures and decisions that folks are kind of intuitively making often anyway, it's just, not necessarily on the list is like, okay, how am I thinking about my biodiversity today? Right? I, no, I get it. I, I, I often, I've come to think, it certainly isn't where I started, that biodiversity may be our secret weapon here in terms of regenerative stewardship, working land agriculture, in that um, as someone who's you know deeply into the science of measuring carbon and water and all these physical chemical type things, um, you don't need a uh, a scientific degree or perspective or a spreadsheet or a sensor or anything to walk into a farm and recognize where biodiversity is thriving and where it's struggling. Um, and if there's ways that we can make that visible to people, biodiversity is a real thing. And, you know, birds may be symbolic, but they're not alone, right? The, lots and lots of papers on insects in the past couple of years and the insect apocalypse, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and they're all telling us that we're getting things, um, wrong. And, it, and I think it's a place where people can appreciate biodiversity. They may think of it as, as aesthetic instead of functional, mm. um, but um, I, that's okay. I can start there and work with it. I think in a lot of ways, and I would like to help us appreciate the benefit of the, some of these other harder things like carbon and water in time. I see a question from uh, Leland about grass-fed exchange follow-up with the link on the public comment request. Not only that, I'll, I'll uh, promise here today that uh, when the public comment period opens um, or whenever, if it's already out there and I'm just not aware of it, we'll send an email to everybody that's in our email list and post it on social media. Because I really hear strongly now there's a great opportunity in front of us to engage. And Grassfoot Ex Exchange never tries to have an opinion of its own. You know, we're not here as an advisory or an advocacy or anything else. We want to educate, but even that education is farmer to farmer. And what we most want to do is allow farmers and ranchers to get their voice out there and get it heard. So we're right with you, Leslie, and I'll use every tool in our arsenal to work with you as well to, um, to give farmers the opportunity to share their voice um, and say what's important. And I'm sure it'll be full of nuance. Um, it's really hard to get anybody to listen to nuance these days. We kind of live in a world where everyone wants black and white, but um, that's not kind of how it works. And, uh, but, but if this is a window where we can, um, have a conversation. It feels like we hit this at, at just the right time. Um, and uh, recognize the last six to nine months or maybe 12 have been frustrating for people with this vacuum where both sides are kind of waiting on each other. But if some things start to unfreeze and we get some windows uh, to contribute, um, maybe we can kind of spark that conversation. Um, I see, oh, Melinda, you put something in here. And Noah has a comment period open. Mm -hmm. Not about the atlas. Okay. All right. Well, let, let, let's keep our eyes open um, and uh, get this going. Any last words? Uh, we're two minutes over. I promised to wrap it up. So uh, uh, Melinda, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I think just, you know, <clears throat> huge thanks for pulling the, pulling us all together this evening to have this discussion. It's It's important that we continue to talk with each other and also with others about 
what we've all been going through tonight. Um, there's a lot more. There's a lot more that we can do together collaboratively and lifting up each other's voices. Awesome, collaborate. I'm with you on that, Leslie. Oh, I would say that this is just an incredibly important moment. Um, I, I think in in our generation, it's a pivotal moment. It's a pivotal conversation. Um, I I hope we won't let uh, be stripped from us by the politicization of it and polarization. I hope we will, as people on the land, take it very seriously as an opportunity to really uh, drive this where it needs to go because we really are losing the things that we care about. Our ag communities are unraveling. You know the lands we care about, the biodiversity that's so important to us, the ecological function, our watershed health, the bird declines, the pollinator declines. They're real. They're real. And this is a chance for us to take a leadership role. So I really, I, I think it's a great moment to be involved and um, and try to push through some of the, the noise that is coming with this. Yeah, maybe we don't even. This conversation, yeah. Yeah, this is awesome because I also hear, um, you know, we don't need to wait on the politicians. It's not like they're developing secret answers that they're going to roll out and make us angry. There's a little window here where um, we can get involved and uh, be a part of the conversation. So, and I recognize that, uh, you know, there still comes all nasty politics and all kinds of other sausage making behind the scenes. Um, it's never ugly, but uh, it's never pretty. So, um, but, but if we can get involved a little bit here and uh, get some voices heard, it's a great window. I'm really glad we had this conversation now um, and we'll make sure it gets on the agenda here for the Grassfield Exchange um, in May. Um, and um, yeah, let's continue the conversation. Uh, like I said, the recording will be on Facebook. So anybody wants to come back and watch it again. Um, I, I mean, I've got three pages of notes here myself. So <laughs> it's uh, hopefully other people have got it. Uh, again, Grassfoot Exchange will be May 18th through the 20th. We're really hoping to get together face-to-face -face, and we'll pick up that conversation then, but let's keep it going in, in the virtual world until then. So thanks, Leslie. Thanks, Melinda, for taking time out of your evening and uh, let's hope we move the ball forward here. Thanks. Sounds great. Thank you all. Bye. Bye.